Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 96, Meet the Neighbors. Now, this week we're still getting our bearings. Last week we saw the emergence of the Stem Duchy of Saxony and the Eastern Marches. Now this week we take a look at the major neighbors, the Bohemians, the Poles and the Danes. It's right around this time, in the middle of the 10th century, that these political entities form. As always, none of this happens smoothly, so expect all sorts of battles and betrayals, including a legion of thieves. But before we start, just a reminder, the History of the Germans podcast is advertising free, thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com. You'll find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Harm V, Marcus N, Brian L, who've already signed up. Last week, we explored the destiny of the Saxons since Charlemagne first invaded in 772. And we ended with the death of Otto I in 973, when the duchy seemed well set up. The original territory between the Rhine and the Elbe River was now well settled. Cities had emerged around the seats of bishops or the castles of important noblemen. A new military system had been established that relied heavily on armoured men on horseback who were bound to their leader by an oath of fealty. Beyond the Elbe River, two men, Hermann Billung and Margrave Gerung, had conquered the land of the Slavic tribes all the way to the Oder and Neisse rivers. These territories, roughly the current Länder of Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, Brandenburg, Sachsen-Anhalt and Sachsen, had been divided into ultimately four marcher counties, each headed by their own Markgraf. The population of these lands were predominantly Slavic peoples, many of whom had at least nominally embraced Christianity. Otto had also founded a number of new bishoprics in Brandenburg, Havelberg, Merseburg, Zeitz and Meissen, and the Archbishopric of Magdeburg is now in charge of the latter three. The purpose of these bishoprics was to embed Christianity in the local population and strengthen imperial control over these territories. At the same time, they sent out missionaries to convert pagans further east as part of the great imperial mission to spread the gospel around the world. The Duke of Saxony at the time of Otto's death was still the emperor. But due to his regular absences, Otto had put his old comrade, Hermann Billung, in charge of the duchy as his proxy, and that is where the first cracks appear in the otherwise very neat story. Medieval rule was an intensely personal thing. A vassal swears fealty to another man, not to an institution. And that is why upon the ascension to the throne all vassals have to renew their oaths. Well, it's actually a Freudian slip here when I say renew the oath. Because this wasn't a renewal, it was a new oath. As Otto von Nordheim will say a hundred years later, an oath that was freely made. Personal rule means that the ruler has to be present. How else can you live that relationship? Moreover, the oath of fealty went two ways. Not only does the vassal promise to serve the liege lord in war, the liege lord is also obliged to protect the vassal, to give access to justice and listen to the vassal's counsel. So when Otto I disappears to Italy for his coronation as emperor in 962, will be almost ten years before he returns. In all that time, his Saxon vassals had to make do with his stand-in, Hermann Billung. And this vague situation did become untenable. 
At some point in the 970s, Hermann Billung transitioned from acting on Otto's behalf to pretending to be the real duke. In 972, Hermann calls an assembly in Magdeburg. With burning tapers and all the bells ringing, he was received by the archbishop and led by his hand into the church. He even took the emperor's place at dinner and slept in the emperor's bed in his palace. It was a clear act of defiance against imperial prestige. The Saxon nobles, who seemingly went all along with it, sent a clear message to Otto the Great. If he continues to stay away from the duchy, there will follow another leader, who is present and prepared to fulfill his obligations. Basically, the Saxons were in rebellion. This issue was resolved quite quickly by Hermann Billung, dying soon afterwards, and then Otto I making his way up north post-haste. But this is not the last time the Saxons will declare their displeasure with their absent and overbearing leaders. Now, Before we get into this thorny issue, we should probably first take a look at the state of play beyond the forward frontiers of the Kingdom of East Francia. There are three, maybe four, polities that will play a major role in our story going forward, Going from north to south, these are Denmark, Poland, Bohemia and Hungary. Now, I will not go into detail about Hungary here. If you want to know more, I give a rundown of early Hungarian history up to and beyond the Battle on the Lechfeld in episode 6. For today's purposes, it's enough to know that the Hungarians, or Magyars as they call themselves, are not Slavs, but steppe nomads, probably originally from Siberia. Their language is related to Finnish and Estonian. They appear in Western records for the first time in 895, when they are moving into the Carpathian Basin. From there, they raid deep into Germany, Italy and even as far as Burgundy. Otto I defeated them on the Lechfeld and had their three leaders executed. In the subsequent upheaval, a grandson of Arpad, the original leader of the Magyars, consolidates power with the help of Otto I and his brother, the Duke of Bavaria. Missionaries are admitted and two generations later, their king, Weik, is baptized and takes the name of Stephen, becoming Saint Stephen in the process. His relatives, and I use that in the loosest sense of the word, will rule Hungary until 1301. Going north from Hungary, the next important power is Bohemia. As you probably know, Bohemia is roughly equivalent to modern-day Czech Republic. It consists itself in two parts. The northern part is called Bohemia itself, in order to confuse everything, and the southern part is known as Moravia. Moravia is the first to make a splash on the European stage. In 805, Charlemagne had defeated the Avars, another nomadic peoples originating from Mongolia, who had formed an empire that ranged from the Elbe River down through Czech Republic, Hungary into the Balkans into the power vacuum that had been created by the demise of the Avars stepped the Moravians, a Slavic people. They created another empire that lasted around 100 years from 820 to 906. This, the great Moravian Empire, reached its peak under Ratislav, 846 to 870, and Svatopluk, 870 to 894, when their power stretched from southern Poland to western Hungary. The World Heritage Convention describes Great Moravia as follows, quote, at the height of its development, it was already a consolidated, proto-feudal state with its own ruling dynasty, a complex of castles, an independently organized church, and a developed economy. The Great Moravian Empire was an important state entity of the Christianization period in Central Europe, 
with cultural ties to the Byzantine Empire. Moreover, its culture laid the foundations of Slavonic literature and material heritage of the West Slavonic peoples. So, a lot more sophisticated than, say, the Saxons were before Charlemagne had arrived. The Moravians were formerly vassals of the Carolingian Empire, and we find that on several occasions their rulers swore fealty to the emperor, though they probably crossed their fingers behind their backs when they're making their oaths. Their foreign policy was a constant attempt to wiggle out from under the Carolingian kibosh. For a long time, the Carolingian Empire and later the Kingdom of East Francia were strong enough to force the Moravians to admit Bavarian missionaries to enter their lands and convert the locals. But as the Carolingians weakened, the Moravians found room to maneuver. Prince Ratislav expelled the Bavarian missionaries and asked the Pope to send him fresh, basically non-German ones. But the Pope refused, as he did not want to cross the Franks. So the Moravians turned to the Emperor in faraway Constantinople, asking him to send missionaries. That he did. Two brothers arrived in Moravia in 863, Constantine and Method. They not only had profound theological learning, but also experience as diplomats and, most importantly, spoke a Slavic language. Being aware that mumbling strange phrases in Latin wasn't going to ease conversion, the two brothers translated the most significant parts of the Bible and the Church Fathers into the Slavic language, the one that they had picked up back home in Thessaloniki. And to write it down, the brothers invented a Slavic script, called Glagolica, that remained in use until the Cyrillic alphabet replaced it in the 10th or 11th century. Moreover, the brothers convinced the Pope to allow this Slavic language to be used in church liturgy alongside Hebrew, Greek and Latin. A huge achievement if you take into account that it took the Reformation before Western Europeans could finally hear the Bible in a language most of them understood. This language, that would later be known as Church Slavonic, is still used in Orthodox rites across Eastern Europe. Shortly after this great diplomatic success, Constantine died in Rome. He was buried in one of my all-time favorite Roman churches, the Basilica de San Clemente. His original resting place is a rather unassuming corner of the underground church that is covered in dedications from all Slavic nations as well as others. Now, Constantine is better known as Saint Cyril, and together the two brothers are known as the Apostles to the Slavs. The other feat that made St. Cyril and Method famous was the recovery of the relics of San Clemente. Clemente had somehow irritated the Emperor Trajan and was martyred by being thrown overboard in the Black Sea with an anchor attached to his feet. That happened around the year 100 AD. Miraculously, his body, including anchor, was preserved for 700 years on a beach in Crimea, where Cyril found him. He then brought San Clemente, seemingly minus his anchor, to Rome, where the aforementioned basilica was dedicated to be his final resting place. Despite his rather unpleasant maritime experience, San Clemente is the patron saint of seafarers, so honouring him here may come in handy when I am in the middle of the Atlantic. Enough of this particular diversion. But Saint Cyril and Saint Method weren't a diversion. They matter because they are from Constantinople and were linked to what would later be called the Greek Orthodox tradition. But they did submit themselves and the Moravian Church to the Pope. Being subject to the Pope was however not enough for the East Frankians. 
They wanted the Moravian Church to report to the Bishop of Regensburg, the closest diocese. So the Carolingians encouraged Svatopluk, the nephew of Ratislav, to rebel, a rebellion that was successful. Now once Svatopluk was firmly installed, he handed St. Method over to the Bavarian Church, who imprisoned him in a monastery. That now irritated the Pope, who forced the Bavarians to release St. Method, while Svatopluk, again, wiggled out of the stranglehold of the divided East Franklin Kingdom. In defiance, the Pope made St. Method an archbishop. But by 890, this period of Moravian Slavic Church came to an end. Method had died in 885, and the Pope had replaced him, not with one of his pupils, but with a Swabian, who became the Bishop of Nitra. This guy called Wiching banned the use of the Slavic language in Moravian Church services and expelled Method's pupils, who would then spread their type of liturgy across Eastern Europe. And about ten years later, the Moravian Empire disappeared in a fireball of civil war and Hungarian attacks. Now, even before Great Moravia had fallen, the local warlords on the periphery of the realm had begun fighting it out. Okay, serious warning. Now comes the part I have been dreading. Pronunciation of Slavic names. I think I'm okay with French and Italian and obviously with German and English. And I might do Dutch and Danish, though that's already tricky. But Czech, Polish, Ukrainian and Russian is not my forte, let alone Hungarian and Estonian. So, my profound apologies for all that will come next. Alright, Bohemian warlords. There were many, but one starts to stand out. A man called Borivoy. He is the first of the House of Premislid, who will rule Bohemia until 1306. His base is in central Bohemia, a very fertile place at the intersection of multiple long-distance trade routes. He plays a smart policy of playing the Moravian prince the king of East Francia and his neighbours out against each other. One advantage he took early on was to convert to Christianity, which made him the go-to guy for the major powers in the region. In exchange, he allowed all three kinds of missionaries to enter his territory, the pupils of Cyril and Method, the Bavarians and the Frankish missionaries. His sons, and forgive me if I do not even attempt to pronounce them, expanded further from his father's position and founded the city of Prague in a near-perfect position on a rock dominating the Moldau or Vitava river. In the next generation, we are now in the year 921, we have again two brothers sharing the rule. By now, the Premislids have wiped out the last of the competing warlords and have gained control of most of Bohemia. These brothers are known to us as Wenceslas and Boleslas. Wenceslas was the elder and as much the more senior. The old game of playing back and forth with the king of East Francia, Bavaria and Moravia have come to an end. Moravia had gone and was replaced by the Hungarians and the kingdom of East Francia had reconsolidated under King Henry the Fowler and in particular Bavaria had come back into the fold, leaving only a choice between the Franks or the Hungarians. Equally, the religious issue could no longer be kept in limbo. It was Latin Orthodox or even Pagan. Wenceslaus tilted towards Henry the Fowler and the Latin Rite, mainly because Henry had sent his brand new armoured knights up to Prague, and their pointy spears had cleared up any theological doubt he might have had, and young Wenceslaus became a devout Catholic, expelled the pupils of Cyril and Method, and pushed conversion amongst the pagans with the same arguments that convinced him. Now, 
This did not go down well with the general population and in 935 Wenceslaus' younger brother, Boleslaus, decided that political direction had to change. Which meant changing the government and that meant changing the vital status of his brother from living to dead. That was maybe callous, but it was good timing. Because the feared King Henry the Fowler died the following year. As his son Otto ascended the throne, he made a half-hearted attempt to bring Boleslaus to heel. He sent the famous legion of thieves from Merseburg into Bohemia. This was a division of the army made up entirely of convicts who were given the choice between losing their heads or other extremities right now or in the service of the empire. Now these guys were a long way from the well-trained and disciplined cavalry of Henry the Fowler. They nevertheless achieved an initial success in a skirmish with Boleslas' troops, but then their discipline crumbled and the Bohemians retaliated, resulting in the loss of limb that had always been inevitable. Otto I did not have much bandwidth to go after these Bohemian semi-pagans because he was caught up in a near-constant civil war. It took him until 950 before he could make another attempt at bringing Boleslaus to heel. This time he came with all the might his father had created and he had built upon. Boleslaus took one look at the army that had assembled before his castle and like his brother, his religious scruples disappeared into thin air. Boleslaus accepted vassal status in the East Frankian kingdom and he would come to Otto's aid in the Battle of the Lechfeld in 955. Now how exactly this vassal status was structured has been subject to near-endless debate between German and Czech historians. On the one hand, the Bohemian dukes and later kings could be called to provide military assistance and were involved in the election of the emperor. On the other hand, the kings and emperors rarely travelled to Prague and if they did it was usually just to resolve one of these incessant civil wars. Justice, taxation, building of castles and cities were the sole responsibility of the Bohemian ruler. What they had to accept though was that the Bishop of Prague became a direct report to the Archbishop of Mainz, at least for now. And in this context, spiritually, Boleslaus did a full 180 degree turn. He embraced Latin Christianity and sponsored the cult of his murdered brother, who we now know as Good King Wenceslas. It's all a bit rich given that Boleslaus himself was the cause of the martyrdom of the Holy King of Bohemia. But Bohemia flourished under Boleslaus. Its location made it the main entrepot in trade between East and West, which at the time meant the trade in slaves. This was a material source of income, but apparently not enough to satisfy the local aristocrats. Hence, he augmented his income through regular raids into Silesia and northern Moravia. This economic model did come to an end under Boleslas' son, the Duke Boleslas II mainly because his neighbours, the Poles, the Kievan Rus and the Hungarians had also consolidated into entities at least equal in military might to his raiding parties. One of them, and the most important for us, was Poland. Poland developed quite a bit later than Bohemia. There are few, if any, contemporary written sources about what went on in Poland before Widukind put pen to parchment in 970. Archaeologists have found traces of smaller fortifications that date back to the 8th and 9th century. These were then systematically destroyed when new, much larger structures were erected sometime between 920 and 950. In particular, Gnezno and Poznan became centers of power. From there, the early Polish rulers expanded their territory in all directions. 
Their zone of influence ranged from the mouth of the Vistula River to the modern-day Polish-Ukrainian border. The first Polish ruler we hear about is Mieszko, who had pushed his borders westward to the lower Oder River, where he hit upon our old friend Markgraf Gero in around 960. After this brief encounter, Mieszko seems to have concluded that this was not the opponent he wanted to challenge at this point. He concluded a treaty of friendship with Otto the Great. He also married Dobrava, a daughter of Duke Boleslas I of Bohemia. And according to Tietmar, it was Dobrava who converted Mieszko to Christianity, though it's more likely that he saw this as a politically opportune move. The arrangement with Otto meant that Mieszko did not have to fear an expansion of the Saxons beyond the Oder River. And both the Saxons and the Poles had a common set of enemies, the Slavic people living in the marches, who were constantly refusing to pay tribute and raiding into either Poland or Saxony. Or that might just have been the pretext to justify the Saxon and Polish slaving raids. These Slavic pagan people are now encircled by Christian powers, the Saxons to the west, the Poles to the east and the Bohemians in the south. In the north was the Baltic Sea and beyond that, the Danes. Now, early Danish history is the history of the Vikings and if you want to know more about it, there are three options. You can watch the TV series Vikings, which I enjoyed massively and I can only recommend. The only problem is that not all of it, but most of it, is based on notoriously unreliable sagas. The alternative is you could dive deep into modern academic research on the Vikings, which, given the aforementioned unreliability of the written sources, tends to be a touch on the dry side. The third option is to listen to the Scandinavian History Podcast by Michael Shankman, who strikes a great balance between the believed and the believable. Now, as far as the relations between the Danes and the East Frankians go, the first more intense encounter was in the 830s. It starts with a man called Ansgar, Saint Ansgar to you and me. He was a Frankish nobleman from near Amiens who joined the Benedictine monastery at Corby as a child. Corby was not only a famed school and scriptorium, it was also closely associated with the Carolingian family. Hence, the monks were roped into missionary work in the recently acquired land of the Saxons. Monks from Corby founded the abbey of New Corby, or as it's now called Corvey, home to our favorite chronicler, Widukind of Corvey. Hence, Ansgar was sent out to Saxony in 822 to spread the gospel. Being an enterprising soul, he extended his activities beyond the borders of the conquered territory and began preaching on the Jutland Peninsula. He had some initial success and converted one of the minor Danish rulers, but that king lost power shortly afterwards and Ansgar had to return home. In 829, he led a missionary effort into Sweden, where he was able to establish more lasting roots. As a reward for his effort, Ansgar was elevated to the newly created Archbishopric of Hamburg, which incorporated the already established Bishopric of Bremen. As Archbishop, he was given the task to convert all of Scandinavia, and was given the right to create new bishoprics in the heathen lands. Now all this sounds exceedingly grand, but at this time, this was the outer frontier of the empire. The chronicler Adam von Bremen notes that the only stone church in the archdiocese was in Bremen, whilst all others were built from wood. In around 839-840, something on that missionary effort seems to have gone terribly wrong. 
we hear that the Danes come to Hamburg and burn down the whole new city, its wooden churches and its newly established library. St. Ansgar manages to escape with his life and the precious relics that he had brought only a few years earlier. At the same time, Friesland, the modern-day Holland, comes in part under Danish control. And from their bases in the Rhine Delta, they raid along the Rhine, attacking Cologne, Xanten, Mainz and ultimately Aachen, the capital of Charlemagne. The Danes had an easy run, mainly because the empire was riven by conflict between the three sons of Louis the Pious. And therefore the raids came to an end when the inheritance issue was resolved, in the fateful Treaty of Verdun that split the empire into three parts, West Francia, Lothringia and East Francia. This more stable situation also helped Ansgar to resume his missionary activity in Denmark and Sweden. Another Danish king, Horik the Elder, allowed Ansgar to set up missionary bishoprics in Schleswig. But his successor shifted gear and threw the missionaries out again, and this pattern repeated several times over the ensuing decades. Nevertheless, over time Christianity did penetrate deeper into Scandinavia. This had only partially to do with the work of the missionaries. Political and economic factors played a more important role. Getting baptized was a way to become a legitimate ruler of lands in continental Europe. The most famous case of that is Rollo, a Viking leader who was given Normandy or parts of Normandy in exchange for baptism and an oath of fealty. And there's a descendant of Rollo called William the Bastard, who would later become famous for something I quite cannot recall at the moment. Rollo's case was not unusual. These kinds of deals were struck all across England, France and Holland. And another component was trade. Though we know the Vikings as brutal raiders, that's only partially correct. They were mostly traders. And to gain access to certain markets, it had become necessary to be Christian, at least on paper. And finally, the Vikings had taken Christian slaves who were still performing their religious rites. So when Ansgar and his missionaries arrived, they often found there were already existing Christian communities. Given the mostly material considerations that drove this conversion, religious conviction appeared to have been only skin deep. As late as the 13th century, we find indications of the worship of the old gods, even in a commercial and cultural centre like Bergen in Norway. Now, despite this encroaching Christianity, the Danes maintained their Viking lifestyle. Mostly their efforts were directed at England, Ireland and northern France. In 878, the Vikings experienced a serious setback when King Alfred of Wessex, the one of the burnt bread, beat the great heathen army at the Battle of Eddington. As a consequence of that, Viking forces decided to seek new targets on the continent. That is why in 881 to 884, we hear of multiple raids down the Rhine River, as far as Trier, taking away everything that wasn't nailed down. There's also indications of Viking settlements on the Lower Rhine, though they do not exist any longer. As for Denmark itself, it seems that before the 940s there was no central authority. We hear of various kings in Jutland, Zeeland and Skane, who seem to have been as busy fighting each other as they were raiding overseas. Where things become a little more settled and reliable is when we get into the first real king of Denmark, Gorm the Old, who is believed to have reigned from 936 to 958. Gorm may have set out as one of several regional kings in Denmark, but managed over time to expand his territory. And his son, Harald Bluetooth, is understood to have completed the conquest of all of Denmark. What may have driven the need for consolidation of power in Denmark 
was the military recovery in their neighbours to the south, the Kingdom of East Francia. One of the last wars Henry the Fowler fought was against the Danes in 935, and in 936 Gorm the Old appears. There was more fighting along the southern border, and in 942 we hear that Hermann Billung was captured by the Danes. However, he reappeared in Saxony shortly after that, which suggests either a ransom payment or a successful campaign by Otto the Great. At some point in the 960s, Harald Bluetooth converts to Christianity. How this came about exactly is unclear. Here is Widukind of Corvey's version, quote, In the times past, the Danes were Christians, but nevertheless continued to worship idols in their traditional manner. There was a dispute before the king during a feast regarding the worshipping of their gods. The Danes affirmed that Christ was a god, but they claimed that there were other, greater gods who manifested themselves to the people through even more powerful signs and prodigies. Against this, a certain cleric called Popo proclaimed that there is only one true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The images, he proclaimed, were of demons, not of gods. King Harald, who is said to was quick to listen but slow to speak, asked if Popo wished to demonstrate his faith through his own person. Popo responded without hesitation that he wished to do so. The king ordered that the priest be placed under guard until the next day. When morning came, the king ordered that a very heavy piece of iron be heated in the fire. He then ordered the cleric to carry this glowing iron for his Catholic faith. The confessor of Christ seized the iron without any fear at all and carried it as far as the king had ordered. The priest then showed everyone his unharmed hands and gave proof to everyone there of his Catholic faith. As a result, the king became a Christian and decreed that God alone was to be worshipped. There is an alternative version in Adam von Bremen, who wrote a hundred years later, according to which Harald Bluetooth had suffered a terrible defeat from the hands of Otto the Great and was made to convert and become a vassal of the empire. What supports the latter story is that Harald Bluetooth had spent vast amounts of money and effort in reinforcing the Danewerk, the line of defences that stretches across the Jutland Peninsula. This Danewerk had been and will remain the main Danish defence against incursions from the south until Prussian troops will overrun it in one of Europe's most pointless wars in 864. When Otto I died in 973, Harald attacked Saxony, believing the kingdom to be descending into civil war. That, however, backfired badly. Though Otto II was, to say it politely, not the most successful of emperors, he got this one right. Harald was defeated at the Danewirk and sued for peace. All of what is today Schleswig-Holstein was afterwards added to the empire, but we will see how long this will last. This is it. Now you should have the lay of the land. There is the Stem Duchy of Saxony, integral part of the empire and home of its rulers. There are the marches that stretch out eastwards from the Elbe River, inhabited by a number of different, mainly pagan Slavic peoples, who have been forced to convert. Some, like the March of Meissen and the March of Lusatia, are filled with Saxon castles and their garrisons. Others, like the March of the Billungs, is barely penetrated by military forces. Its rulers pay tributes, and that's it. Beyond those, bordering the Mark of Meissen in the south is the Duchy of Bohemia. Christian for a long time already, and its rulers a reliable ally to the empire. In the east, the just recently created Duchy of Poland, 
is ruler Mieszko I had just accepted baptism and has become a vassal of Emperor Otto the Great. And in the north, its ruler Harald Bluetooth had tried to throw off the yoke of the imperial vassalage, but was brought back into the fold by the new Emperor Otto II. For these Slavic peoples living between Elbe and Oder River, the writing seems to be on the wall. Surrounded on all sides by Christian powers much superior to their own strength, the option seems to be surrender and convert, or be traded south as a slave. Hatred is simmering, and they are waiting, hoping and praying for one weakening of the empire to regain their freedom. We'll see next week how that comes about. I hope you will join us again. Now before I go, let me thank all of you for supporting the show, in particular the patrons who've kindly signed up on patreon.com slash historyofthegermans. It's thanks to you this show does not have to do advertising for products you do not want to hear about. If Patreon isn't for you, another way to help this show is sharing the podcast directly or boosting its recognition on social media. If you share, comment or retweet a post from the history of the Germans, it is more likely to be seen by others, hence bringing in more listeners. My most active places are Twitter, at Germans History, and my Facebook page, History of the Germans Podcast. As always, all the links are in the show notes. <laughs>